not know God is big? There were eight little kids up here, and not one of them cried. And neither did the parents, I don't think. It was pretty amazing. That's how great our God is, that we got through baby dedication with uh, no fireworks. It was wonderful. Thank you for all, your, all the moms out there. We uh, just appreciate you so much. Uh, a beautiful reading. Thank you. God's greatness, as we'll dig in here in a moment, is not only cosmic, as we just saw, but it's also personal. So let's ask the Lord to help us to begin to get our minds around that. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, help us. We are at least attempting to try to understand your greatness, the magnitude of your power and your majesty, your strength, your glory. And obviously, our puny minds can only make a faltering beginning. But Lord, we, we want you to fill our minds and hearts with your greatness and your goodness. Remove from our minds those small, imperfect images of you and replace them with the vision that Isaiah had of you and that Jesus has of you. So Lord, uh, help us. We thank you for this beautiful day, this beautiful morning. Thank you for your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Robert Capone is a pastor and a theologian. He uh, wanted to help us understand how and why God made the world, and he used these words. He said, one afternoon before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost sat around in the unity of their Godhead, discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, new ways of being, and new kinds of beings to be. And as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, really, this is absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us up a batch? And the God the Holy Ghost said, terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in. And after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Ghost put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and light and frogs. Pine cones kept dropping all over the place. And crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and grapes, horseradishes and tigers. And men and women everywhere to taste them, to juggle them, to join them and to love them. And God the Father looked at the whole wild party and he said, wonderful just what I had in mind. Good, good, good. And all God the Son and God the Holy Ghost could think of to say was the same thing. Good, good, good. So they shouted together, it's very good. And they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like how great it was for things to be, and how clever of the Father to think of the idea, and how kind of the Son to go to all that trouble putting it together. 
and how considerate of the Spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing and forever and ever they told old jokes and the father and the son drank their wine in the unity of the Spirit and they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other. So you see, that points out something that maybe we don't always get a grasp of, is that creation really wasn't hard work for God. It was play. The Father, the Spirit, the Son, they just, they had a ball creating this incredible universe and in creating you. They, they didn't work up a sweat in amassing this incredible universe. And at the same time, they were filled with joy at what was accomplished. And they're filled with joy at what has been accomplished in each of you, God's creation. Isaiah gives us a wonderful picture of the cosmic greatness of God. And he's writing to Israel at a time when they need a vision of God's greatness because they're in captivity, the Babylonians. They have been put down, captured, oppressed, afflicted. They need a great God. They don't need a wimpy God. And I believe we need a restoration of a vision of a great God for ourselves. We need a great God. We need a God who is strong, who is powerful. A wimpy God doesn't really do much for us. And yet our culture is communicating constantly doubts about who God is and what God is like and whether or not he even exists. And universities are giving the same messages. And so we are constantly bombarded with doubts about who is God? Is God powerful? Is God strong? Is God loving? But this morning, what I want to encourage us to do is to believe our beliefs and doubt our doubts. We get all kinds of encouragement to doubt our beliefs and to believe our doubts. But let's flip that this morning. Deep down, we have a sense of who God is and what God is like. And I want us to see what Isaiah has to say about that and to believe what Isaiah is saying about the greatness of our God. He begins with a question in verse 12 of Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? A span was simply the middle finger to the thumb. God is able to mark off the heavens, the galaxies, in an anthropomorphic way, just his middle finger and his thumb. The greatness of God. And all the waters simply in the hollow of his hand. He enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. Just a measuring cup. The whole earth. In, just in a little measuring cup. 
and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. The picture here is a little set of scales and God says, well, let me put the Rocky Mountains here and I'll put the Himalayas here and let's just trying to communicate the, the bigness and the greatness of God. Isaiah is giving us these images. So God is not only greater than creation, than the universe that he has created, he is greater than the best of humanity. Isaiah continues, who's directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has instructed him. You know, does, does God need some advice? Does God need to go connect with Sigmund Freud and get some counseling to how to run the world, run the universe? Or maybe Dr. Phil uh, could help him with more contemporary issues. I, I don't think so. Whom did he consult, Isaiah says, for his enlightenment? Did he need to visit with Albert Einstein or Stephen Hawking to get enlightened, to get caught up on the latest in scientific developments? And who taught him the path of justice? Martin Luther King or, or Gandhi? I don't think so. In fact, I think both of those men would say they learned justice from God. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So just the absurdity of those questions. Isaiah is throwing out, of course, God is greater than the people he has created. And then God is greater than the nations, Isaiah goes on to say. Even the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Watering your garden, have a little bucket, one little drop falls, that's the nations of the world. That's how they measure up in comparison to God. And they're accounted as dust on the scales. If you have your bathroom scales, maybe you don't use them very often. I don't like to use mine. Uh, and dust accumulates. But the dust on the scales doesn't move the needle whatsoever. Well, that's the nations of the earth. In they don't move the needle in terms of God's purposes and God's power and plans. Isaiah goes on, Lebanon would not provide fuel enough nor its animals enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. Nothing in emptiness. The Hebrew behind these words are my favorite Hebrew phrase. It's been a long time since I studied Hebrew and I don't remember very many of those phrases, but this one I do because it's my favorite. Tohu vabohu. Isn't that a great phrase? Tohu vabohu. You can throw that around, impress your friends, and like you know Hebrew. But nothingness and emptiness, that's what the nations amount to compared to God's power and strength. Now, that should be encouraging for us today as we look around and all the crises that are going on in our world, that all of the threats, all of the danger, that that is nothingness and emptiness compared to God's power and strength. It doesn't move the needle. 
And then Isaiah goes on to say that God is uniquely great, not compared to anything else, but simply in his unique person. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? There's no being. There's no, no entity that compares with our God. And then he goes on to just point out the absurdity of idols, of idol worship. An idol, a workman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. As a gift, one choosing, chooses mulberry wood, wood that won't rot, then seeks out a skilled artisan to set up an image that will not topple. So there's great care in building these little idols. And then he goes on to address those who worship idols. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to live in. The absurdity of humans who God created then making little idols that other humans then bow down to worship instead of worshiping their creator. Now, when we think of the little idols that in the past people would build and worship, like a water bottle, we think that's silly. But yet, we have to look inward and think about, well, what are the idols in my life that I allow to substitute for this great God? What are the ways in which I try to claim power and strength apart from this great God and set up my own little kingdom instead of entering into the kingdom of this great God? So we have to acknowledge that we wrestle with our own idols at different times in our lives. And then he finally, in verse 23, who brings princes to nothing to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing? Basically what it's saying is resistance is futile. Trekkies are noticing that, right? That little, little line. Resistance is futile. There's no way that any of us, any of the nations, can stand up to the power and majesty and strength and wonder of who God is. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stern stem taken root in the earth when he blows upon them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off, carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see. Go out at night, go out into the dark, and look at the stars. Who created these? Who brings out their host and numbers them, and calling them all by name. Isn't that fantastic? That God has named every one of those billions and billions of stars. Because he is great in strength, 
mighty in power, not one is missing. The majesty of who God is is captured in, in these great words by the old theologian Adam Clark. He says, God is the eternal, independent, and self-existent being. The being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made, illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence, and indescribable in his essence, known fully only by himself, because an infinite mind can only be fully comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived, and from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just, right, and kind. I hope that at least some of that paints a picture of who your God is. A God who is eternally just, and right, and good, and kind. That that image fills your mind when life is hard, when life is difficult, just like it was for these Israelites when they were in captivity. That there's a hope and a vision that comes from a great God. And God's greatness is the basis for trust. It's the basis for hope. It's not just cosmic, it's personal. So Isaiah asked the question again to the Israelites. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Well, of course they might say that. They're in captivity. They're asking the hard questions. Well, God, if you're so great, if you're all that, then why are we still in slavery? Why are we still away from our homeland? Why are we still oppressed and afflicted? I'm sure most of us at different times have asked those same questions. God, what good is your greatness if I'm suffering, if I'm experiencing loss, if I'm hurting and confused and in despair? Where is your greatness? How is it helping me? The answer? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He doesn't get tired of us. He doesn't lose contact with us. He doesn't lose his awareness of what we're going through. And his understanding is unsearchable. He knows more about our situation than we do. He has a grasp of how it's going to end. And he's with us in the midst of it. He gives power, Isaiah says, to the faint. And strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and be weary, and the young will fall exhausted. In other words, any human strength is going to give out. 
But God's strength never does. It's always self-renewing. But those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. God is with us. This great God is with us in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our pain. He's with us, renewing us, strengthening us so that we can keep walking, keep running, and mount, even mount up with wings like eagles. The New Testament version of Isaiah 40 is in Colossians 1. Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In Jesus, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Jesus is holding it all together. It's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And now again, just like in Isaiah, it gets personal. It's not just the cosmic Christ, it's the personal. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The one in whom the, all the fullness of deity dwells is in us. All that power and strength and majesty is in Jesus, and then Jesus is in us. That will allow us to run and not grow weary, to walk and not fade. Because we have the hope of the world, the hope of glory in us. He calls the stars by name. He's that powerful. He's that, his knowledge is that inscrutable. But he also calls us by name. Charlie calls you by name. Rick, he calls you by name. Chuck, he calls you by name. Amy, he calls you by name. Each one of us, he calls us by name. He knows us. The very hairs on our head are numbered, Jesus said. Now, for some of you, you have to think back to when in your 20s for that to be, really be significant, for the hairs to be. See, the idea is some of us don't have a lot of hair right now. So. And not only that, but not a, Jesus promises not a hair on our head will be harmed, that we are perfectly safe when we are alive in the kingdom of God. No loss can harm you. Cancer can't harm you. Death can't harm you. Why? Because this great God of the universe, Paul said, is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Paul went on to say in Romans 8, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, 
nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no power, there's no threat that can harm us, that can overwhelm us. Because this great God and this great love wrap us and no one can pluck us out of his hand. Annie Dillard, the great writer, and since it is Sunday morning and she's writing about a Sunday morning, infusing what we've been talking about, God's greatness and power, would be a fitting way to close. She says, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Let's pray. Lord, great, majestic, all-powerful God, we pray that you would indeed draw us out to where we could never return. Draw us out into a vision of your greatness and your glory. Draw us out into the realization that in us is Jesus, the hope of glory, that in us is the same power that raised him from the dead, that gives us strength for whatever life throws at us. Draw us out, O oh Lord, into a sense of communion and love and relationship with you as the great God of the universe, who not only is awesome and all-powerful, but is deeply personal and lives within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Thank you, Howard, for opening the scriptures with us and lifting our eyes to the greatness and the expansiveness of God. And I hope that carries you into the week, thinking about how great God is and that God cares about you and knows you.